Mentor My Mix is made possible by Pure Mind Music and Audio Production Institute. Evolve your sound with expert trainers and up-to-date courses designed to fit the needs of emerging artists and producers. Go to puremind.com for details about the San Francisco campus and online programs. Well, hello and welcome to the Mentor My Mix podcast. I'm Greg Gordon, your host, and today I have a super special guest I am very excited to introduce you all to. Yes, indeed, I've got Stephen Wilson, a.k.a. Cynicus, in the house. What's up, Stephen? How you doing? Good, good. I'm glad to be here. First time in your new place but it isn't yeah that's right well it's the new old place here Mm -hmm. right yeah we've got some serious history in this studio and i'm glad to be able to bring you here and it just feels so good to be here you know and great to have you here today thanks for having me yeah so uh steven we're going to be talking a lot about your illustrious career with avid going back quite a ways steven's been a uh well a developer for avid for over 12 years and now an architect as well so lots of cool stuff to talk about there and kind of your history coming into the music industry, everything from live 365 internet radio to coding for Winamp. And I mean, just a whole slew of amazing historical landmarks in the digital convergence of the music industry. I was right there when music started getting onto the internet, loved technology, and it was just right there to jump into. Cool. Well, first off, we're listening to a track here. Just let's listen to this track just for a couple seconds. Let our audience kind of marinate in this for just a moment here. So uh, tell our audience a little bit about this track. This is Like Ja, right? Yep. By Dr. B. Yep. All right, so what's the significance of this track here? So Dr. B is a DJ with the Ambient Mafia and a friend of mine and puts out these nice, bouncy, chunky, down tempo tracks. This was actually part of a compilation that we put together during lockdown called yeah. Showroom Culture Volume 1. Uh-huh. And actually, a lot of this kind of synergy all sprung from lockdown and actually DJing online. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got quite a crew now yep. that you're DJing with online, yep. and you're also using some cool tech yep. to make that happen. So I definitely want to talk about yep. that. But this was part of a compilation that you guys put out. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think with Ambit Mafia, we've got something like 30-something DJs. But a lot of them are also producers, and they just kind of all said, well, we've got all this talent together. Let's put something together that we would all really enjoy. What was kind of the genesis of that? I mean, 30 artists, producers, DJs, men, women, right? I I imagine it's a nice mix, right? From what I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. How did that come together? The Ambient Mafia actually goes back to, like, 1999. Mm -hmm. I first came across them in something like 2003 when I was... DJing with the Thump Radio crew and doing these Thump show parties out at 550 Barnival. Right. So we hired some of the Ambient Mafia DJs way back then even. Um, we had a kind of long relationship with them and just before um, lockdown happened I was kind of interested in starting to DJ again. And as soon as I kind of got a venue sorted, everything shut down. Ah, <laughs> just the way it is sometimes. And uh-huh. uh, so I was actually and I went, well, hang on, I don't have a venue, but I have all the equipment at home. I know how to do this. I work in the technology. So I just sort of DJing from my home apartment and um, 
the Ambient Mafia went, hey, we love this guy from way back. We're starting to stream online. Why don't you come stream with us? And then they were like, why don't you become one of us? Uh, and it was like, oh, right, uh -huh. yeah, sure. Uh -huh. But I'm done. Uh -huh. And so we started doing this Sunday night chill out show uh -huh. called Sunday Sundown, uh -huh. which is on Twitch every Sunday, 5 to 10 p.m., Twitch TV slash The Ambient Mafia. Mm -hmm. And we all just kind of bonded over the music and we had a whole lot of fun uh, doing that. We're still doing it every week and I actually think we'll continue to do it even though places open back up because we're all kind of dotted around the Bay Area mm -hmm. and you know, Sunday nights you want to chill out. <laughs> right, right. Sure. And it's just uh -huh. so easy to do it online. We've uh -huh. perfected all the methods and uh -huh. we have stage managers running the stage. And everybody's streaming from their own setup, right? Yep. They're all spread out in their own homes. Yeah. And you've got a system now where you've got some stage managers yep. who are organizing this. So what's the connective tissue that makes that work? Well, everybody moved into Discord, so we get everyone in one place. So right. we can be chatting and, right, right. and communicating between everybody and uh -huh. making sure, you know, we found a DJ, um, got the DJ up and running, and uh, the technology's all working. So there's a whole background chat kind of going on all the time when we're doing these five-hour shows. And they're relatively simple to do. You know, five hours is, is pretty easy. We certainly um, get more complicated with Unison. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> but... You know, it's five hours. We break it down into two, two and a half hour shifts for each stage manager. So every stage manager is basically not having to be there for well, all the night. Explain what the role of the stage manager yeah, is a, in it's this. A, it's a great one. It's more or less like a stage manager in a typical venue with the DJs gone off in the toilet or something like that. You know, <laughs> they're, they're going and getting them. The difference is they're operating a sort of central stage. Uh -huh. So the DJs actually stream onto their own Twitch uh -huh. stream. Uh-huh. And then the stage managers are using a tool called Streamlink uh -huh. to pull that back into OBS on the central stage. Uh-huh. And then that central stage puts out onto the Ambient Mafia channel. Mm -hmm. And that way, on the central stage, we can actually flip between the two DJs and have a continuous stream out. Early when we started doing the online streaming, we were doing host mode and raids and stuff like that, and that boots your users on and off. And right, right. So now. you don't have continuity that yep. way, right? You've yep. got to stop it, then you got to re bring it up, and people get booted off, and right? So yep. now you've created a way using the stream stage to yep. manage that process, yep. so it's just one continuous stream, yep. right? exactly. That's super cool. And everybody still gets to stream to their Twitch channels at yep. the same time? Yep. So they're individually streaming to their Twitch at the same time that you've got an Ambient Mafia yep, exactly. channel, right? Yep. So and it's going out all across this. Yep. And the end of their slot, if they've got people in their channel, they usually raid them back into the main Ambient Mafia channel. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. it's usually only that one person monitoring the stream. So we've actually got t-shirts with a logo of raiding with a party of one. <laughs> <laughs> Just because it's like, yeah, everyone kind of knows to go into the main stage and that's where all the friends will be hanging out and uh -huh. people have a really good time. That's cool. And you got your Ambient Mafia t-shirt uh -huh. on here. Supporting. Nice. Supporting and representing. That's cool. So how long have these been going on now, these streams? Um, they pretty much started in the 
March of the lockdown. March of uh, 20. So you guys jumped yeah, on it, huh? Yeah, right. You guys were really on it right then, yeah, huh? Yeah. That's, that's and, cool. You know, because I had the technical background. Originally, we were hosting everything on my computers. Yeah. And, you know, had a great streaming setup, tons of bandwidth, that yeah. sort of thing. Uh-huh. But, you know, we've realized that there's nothing special about the stage. So the stage moves around from computer to computer. Mm-hmm. But we also use this thing called Parsec, which allows people to get their hands on the stage. So they're just basically launching Parsec. They see the Ambient Mafia stage computer. They do that. And they screen share right into the stage. Wow. That's super cool. So, yeah, we've used other things in the past, but Parsec's just way simpler. And it's it's also got very low CPU utilization, so it doesn't start interfering with, you know, the broadcast. Yeah. Is there a bandwidth minimum that you need to be able to manage that? Generally, um, imagine, right? if you're doing like 1080p video, anything up to, you know, five megabits is fine. Oh, really? Upload. That little? Uh, oh, that's yeah, pretty good. Compression's okay. pretty good. You know, and and so it's not a huge upload, but it also depends on the kind of DJs. Some DJs are much more visually oriented, and mm-hmm. so they want the detail. The resolution on it yeah. to be more detailed. Yeah, and yeah. so they'll hit, you know, six, seven megabits mm-hmm. pretty easily, but that's that's all pretty doable on a, mm-hmm. a stage computer nowadays. Yeah, we've been really getting into that with our new uh, live streaming stage, and we've been pushing to get 20, 25 mm-hmm. uploads so that we can get enough resolution to really make that our LED screen pop in the back. Yeah, but well, uh-huh. that's the one thing of it. But the other thing you have to think about it is on the other side, not everyone has 25 megabits down. That's so right. That's at that right. point, if you're... They're, they're going to compress it anyway, though, aren't they? Yeah. It's getting compressed. No um, if you're going to Twitch, I don't think... Unless you're like an affiliate in Twitch. So there's this thing called adaptive bit rate. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you'll see like your high, medium, and low settings yeah, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. quite often in browsers yeah. and... I think only once you're like an affiliate do Twitch actually do the ABR for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so otherwise, you know, for Ambient Mafia, I mean, we're not particularly interested in becoming a Twitch partner. We're just there to have a good time. So we just mm-hmm. put out a single stream and that single streams for everyone. Right, right. Well, they're lucky they got such a tech geek in you, huh? <laughs> so let's just talk about your background. How did you get into all of this stuff to start with? Ooh, yeah, because, I mean, so many people come at this industry from so many different angles. There's so many different ways to approach the music business, the music industry, and you've definitely taken that decidedly tech approach, mm-hmm. which has obviously served you very well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so what was the background that got you to where you are now? Well, started out with, Nothing related. I qualified as a chemical engineer. Oh, wow. I was okay. doing sort of energy industry software. That company that then got bought up out by General Electric, and it went from being a fun little startup to being a massive business, and I was like, no, I need out of there. So, right, but you came at it from computer engineering from the mm-hmm. very get, right? You, well, you got a degree in that, I'm assuming, of course? Computer engineering? Yeah. No, no, no. No, no, no classical computer engineering. Really? At, to- at all. Oh, well, wow. No, it's all chemical engineering. I mean, it teaches you about systems and what you yeah. And get through pipes and oh, yeah, that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Plenty of math in there. Right. Um, but of course, so chemical engineering, but it had no related no. computer sciences at all. No. But I started getting to um, software in university. I found an internship out in California, mm-hmm. and that was energy industry software. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to do that, and that's what brought me out. I'm out originally from Scotland, so. I was studying in Scotland then, but um, I can't. Hence the Scottish accent. Hence the Scottish accent, if you didn't notice (laughs) yet. Uh Uh-huh. So I kind of got my chops in software just from working with it. But then I was really unhappy at this company at the end. And um, 
it was the 4th of July and I was been sort of dabbling around with like music stuff at home. I had like a little bit of DJ equipment and some MIDI stuff hooked up to my computer and stuff like that. And then was there a musical background that, that brought that on or was that just purely passion? And yeah, I've always interest? been really kind of interested in music. And mm-hmm. then of course, when I got more into the technology, I learned more about technology with music and I was yeah. like, Oh, this is really interesting stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, one fourth of July, I was having a party with a bunch of friends and I was saying, oh, I don't really like this job. And a friend of mine says, hey, I've just started up an internet radio company. Um, why don't you come and interview with us? Mm-hmm. And that was Live 365. Oh, and wow. I interviewed with them and they straight off uh, said, we'll hire you. Please build an MP3 player for us. And this was right at the Napster days. Uh-huh. So, so this was 90s. This would have been late uh, 90s, early 2000s? Early. So like 99, 2000, yeah. 2001, something okay. like that. Okay. So right when... It was kind of definitely in the Wild West. There was a moratorium on streaming uh, royalties mm-hmm. even back then because mm-hmm. they couldn't figure out what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, was, it was pretty interesting. That was my leap over into media. Mm-hmm. And I just really enjoyed working with media of various different types and getting paid for it. So yeah. your first development gig was building an MP3 player for Live 365. Because you okay. couldn't play MP3 in a browser back then. That's right. Uh-huh. Because uh-huh. uh-huh. yeah, there was royalties to MP3s. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this little browser plugin. Oh, this is the Fraunhofer royalty yeah, to yeah. use the technology yeah, yeah, they yeah. wanted. That. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, and when you're trying to get thousands and thousands of listeners, and Fraunhofer charges you a buck per listener, wait, 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 yeah, up. that's yeah. definitely going to add up. Sure, yeah. but uh-huh. um, now you know all the browsers have got native media playback, but it was very, very poor in the start. Uh-huh. So I had to write a, a plugin for Netscape and a plugin for Internet Explorer way back then. Uh huh. And so people would come to the site and they would be able to play the radio stations with like one click. Otherwise, they had to go find a Winamp or, you know, Mac Jam or all these other external players. Right. Now, weren't you involved with Winamp as well? So after Live 365, uh-huh. the founders of Winamp went, who did all this stuff on this Live 365 stuff? That looks pretty cool. Uh-huh. And so through someone else I worked with, they got in touch with me and they said, we're going to create a new startup. Winamp had already been sold to um, AOL by that point, and they'd all been fired because they were very non-corporate and, and non-conformist, certainly not going to sit well in a big corporation like AOL was back then. Oh, the yeah. So they, they did a corporate raid, kind of cleaned house, and said, yep. we're going to do it our way now. And so what they wanted to build, and this was back, again, like early 2000s, what they wanted to do is build a sort of indexing system that would index all your music at home and then put the results up on this core website. And then we provided the ability for it to stream from your home through this website so you could get to your music from anywhere. Wow, yeah, okay. So uh-huh. was kinda... This might be a little ignorant, but it would, did that have anything to do with peer-to-peer file streaming? Was that kind of a form of its own peer-to-peer? or It was kind of its own thing. It, it actually used some technology to stream through a proxy server that didn't mean you had to open up your home firewall. Mm. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, back then, even Mm -hmm. a lot of music applications were saying to work, uh, you had to open port 80 on your firewall. Mm -hmm. Just horrific things that you would kind of go, now, like, don't do that. But Mm -hmm. this was all to avoid having to do that because we knew, like, you tell an average consumer, go open up some ports on your firewall. You're like, okay, (laughs) I'm not going to use your software then. (laughs) 
Right. Okay. Well, so that was bought by Yahoo. Yep. Music in LA, right? Yeah. Yahoo is excellent at very bad decisions. Uh, <laughs> and they just yeah. made a complete mess of it. And oh, it did eventually yeah. kind of get to see the light of day, but by that time it was utterly in Yahoo's demise. They've managed to do that to a few, quite a few things, huh? Yeah. Well, but obviously that set you up mm-hmm. with some notoriety in the music side of the tech industry. Well, yeah. Huh? And it was also sort of the sort of end of the dot com phase where companies were really struggling to make money right. on the internet. And and certainly audio was hadn't really been found an official way of doing that. So at that point, I'm like, okay, now I should get a job with a real company and not go and startups and dot-coms. And so that's when I found uh, DigiDesign. Ah, way back yes, then. DigiDesign. Yeah. Uh-huh. I smile because I, I was there at the very beginning as well, obviously from a user perspective, mm-hmm. using audio media cards and Sound mm-hmm. Designer and Sound Designer 2 and DEC, the original DEC software. I, I have like the original manual describing what digital audio was. Uh-huh. When they put out Pro Tools, you know, they were trying to attract all these, uh, and this is long before I weren't there, attract all these regular studio people to actually do music and digitally. And it was kind of like, well, they had to educate them what it was and how it wouldn't be affecting the sound or how it would be affecting the sound and how they could use it. Mm-hmm. This manual was put out, I think, 93 or maybe before that, I think. But um, it was a really interesting read. So I found that during an office cleaning and I still have that one around because it's <laughs> like just so like memorabilia. Oh, at yeah. this point, yeah. right? So uh, what were you originally brought on the team to do with DigiDesign? What was the beginning uh, of that? I had complete imposter syndrome for a start. And uh-huh. the first day I was like, I think I'd picked up Pro Tools like once before. I'd used yeah. Cakewalk a Cakewalk. lot back, oh, back yeah. then. So what they wanted me to do originally was um, actually figure out how to do latency compensation. So whenever you've got plugins or some form of processing Mm -hmm. and they've got little buffers in them, whether it's on hardware or in software, Mm -hmm. those incur delays. And so if you've got different processing on different tracks, then you can actually get things going out of phase. So where you might be looking for a drum to go boom, it starts flamming and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, phase is very, very critical in studio recordings. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you've ever heard drums recorded out of phase, you know exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they knew that this was an issue, but they didn't really have a good plan how to go about it. So I, I not only did I have to code it, I had to design it from scratch and how it should work and how it could work. Now, was this all originally done with TDM processing mm-hmm. in mind, right? Because there was no native plug-in processing at that time, was there? Uh, in the early stages? There was, because there was a Pro Tools free before I ever joined mm-hmm. Avid. But and for a, the longest time, uh, delay compensation was an HD feature. Yeah. But then that entire feature made it its way into like native engines and, of course, now the hybrid engine, which can be, you know, sitting on low-latency DSPs and actually processing up in the host. Mm-hmm. So how long did that take to develop the code that goes into something like that? Are you actually coding it yourself or are you working with a team of coders? Well, I was, I, you must have been, unfortunately, right? still to this day, I seem to be the delay compensation expert in the company. And whenever there's things that they want, like new boxes to come out mm-hmm. where 
they still come back to me because, you know, I just have all the domain knowledge now. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's a big deal though. When you're in the studio, especially like on input monitoring and being able to monitor without latency and still have plugins going on yeah. in your mix. And yeah. I, I know that's a point at which students struggle to make sure they understand what that means and how do you deal with that. And it can be complicated. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's not like there's just one workflow. I mean, uh, musicians just want everything as low latency as possible. Right. Uh, whereas if you're in the post world, you want everything phase accurate, whether you're recording or not. So right, right. Uh, there's different needs between different kinds of users. Well, when if you've got a big mix session, you're going to crank your buffer up and you're going to make sure you got, you know, everything you need to manage your processing mm-hmm. as opposed to tracking, right? Yep. So, I mean, was that a part of the original consideration? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah there's, there's all sorts of things where you can go, well, this isn't working for me, so I want to defeat uh, the latency compensation algorithm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always ways for people to get out of it mm-hmm. deliberately. But it, in general, tries to work uh, so seamlessly and keep things in phase. I see. So that led to a 12-year run as a developer yep. with what was ultimately to become Avid. Yeah. Yeah. So what were the other kinds of development projects that you were instrumentally involved in? So after latency compensation, the next big project I worked on was Elastic Audio, which is uh, native time stretching on the timeline within Pro Tools. Uh Uh, So you can turn around and stretch a 80 BPM loop up to 120 or conform it to session tempo. Mm -hmm. There's even pitch in there. You can pitch things up and down. And it was kind of, I guess, kind of like a little bit of a shot across the bow at Ableton. I was they, just thinking that. I was thinking, well, how influenced were you guys by what Ableton I've had got done? a story. <laughs> I knew you just might. I'd been using Ableton myself. I thought it was a great sketch pad, very easy to put things together. But there was a few bits that didn't really make sense to me. So when I was doing Elastic Audio, I had enough context to kind of go, ah, no, we'll stretch the beat to the marker, whereas Ableton was... you move the marker to the beat. Oh, yeah. Uh And so we kind of changed that paradigm inside Pro Tools. And then the next release of Ableton came out, and guess what? Uh They changed it to moving the beat to the marker. Sure, sure. So it's a little bit of... uh, Influenced by and then subsequently. Well, I'm sure everybody influences that. I mean, that's just the way it works, right? You see somebody do that and you go, oh, that's a good idea. And then you iterate on it, right? Exactly. I think I can do better. There's always competitive analysis goes on in any particular project. I'm sure you guys must be dissecting the heck out of these things just as they must do. Oh, yeah. 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 And, you know, being able to stretch and as Ableton says, warp their beats. Mm. And, you know, warping was, I think when it came out, it was a little mysterious for a lot of people how to mm. manually warp. It's great when you can just make it work. Mm. But um, I think Pro Tools also had a good amount of that as well in terms of manual manipulation to get the beats to match up right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah and then there was things even before that, like Beat Detective and stuff like I that. I was just going to say Beat so Detective. There's, there's, there's yeah. a, just a uh-huh. lot of ways you can do it. One of them is just slice up all your audio. You don't actually do any time stretching. And, uh-huh. And that actually works great because it preserves your transients seamlessly. Certainly, there's been times when you're using Ableton, you hear it sort of flamming the start. Mm-hmm. And certainly, Ableton hasn't always had a particularly great algorithm for time stretching. In fact, when I used to do radio sets for FM, I would be doing a lot of prep in the background, getting really, really deep mixes. And I used Sony Acid for that because it always sounded much better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or Sonic Foundry Acid before Sonic. Sonic Found, yeah, uh-huh. was, before Sony got them, yeah. Which, which was a great program for time stretching. Mm-hmm. I think one of the original ones was uh, Reason, Propellerhead's Reason, and their ability to uh, slice 
mm -hmm. and then output the slices and then retemper them. Yep. Kind of like getting granular, like granular synthesis does, mm -hmm. you know, being able to take the granules and expand them and compress them. Okay, so Elastic Audio, obviously that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. What version of Pro Tools? About 7.4. So my first release was 6.4. Oh, so wow. That was where I didn't uh, realize it was, goes back that far. That's, yeah. Now we just use years for numbers. <laughs> it's just way easier to remember. Uh-huh, Yeah. And then the next big deal was clip-based gain, yeah? Yeah, uh -huh. which is a deceptively simple feature, but hugely powerful for people who want to do dialogue and don't necessarily yeah, want a whole bunch of... Yeah, hugely powerful in post. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. they don't want to do a bunch of automation mm -hmm. and faders. And of course, with my knowledge with Elastic Audio, I knew that we had to have this work, not just as its own feature, but it had to work with Elastic Audio as well. Mm -hmm. And then we had to, of course, design processing order and stuff like that. And... Yeah, we took a lot of um, technology we actually developed with Elastic Audio and expanded it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny because so many people take this stuff for granted now, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's just assumed like you should be able to change the gain of a clip. And, oh, yeah. You know, be able to stretch stuff. And I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, how much it took to get to these places. Yeah. And, and, you know, even... Just thinking back, you know, playing an MP3 off the internet, good Lord. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. And look at where we are now. <laughs> but certainly, um, you know, the difference with between like doing projects for a dot-com thing to doing something within Avid and Pro Tools, I mean, projects can very often take multiple years. You know, I think Elastic Audio took me two years and there was multiple people on it easily. And it has to integrate into the code base of the entire application. Mm -hmm. And you got to make sure you're not breaking other things while oh, yeah. you're building new things, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, it, it's always interesting with Pro Tools. You know, you can turn around and find that something broke completely unrelated in another area. And it might even be a feature you didn't know existed, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It can be that. You know, right. There's a lot of, lot of deep knowledge and many years of feature development and inside Pro Tools. So who does that debugging? Was there a team that's just specialized in debugging that? No, right it, it all comes down to who's available when you start getting down to releases. And uh -huh. I've had to go find multiple bizarre bugs in weird places all the time, but you know, it just takes a bit of experience. There's a bit of code archaeology involved, uh -huh. if you like. Uh -huh. um, because of I this. like that. That's it. That's yeah. it. Code archaeology, man. That oh, sounds yeah, like yeah. the title of an album. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it, I mean, it could be a feature that was written 15 years ago, you know, uh -huh. and, it, and it's always worked. And now you've done something and, oh, you've got to go find it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Now that's some sleuthing there. And speaking of code, then came cloud. So mm -hmm. you, you created a whole new architecture for collaboration in yep. the cloud. Yeah. And I, I can only imagine that that must have really had a big hit with COVID coming on. Oh, now. absolutely. Overnight, our numbers skyrocketed when everyone was sent home and they wanted to collaborate with people, you know, even if it were like next door or something like that, wouldn't really matter. You weren't supposed to be going to other people's houses. But also at the same time, Avid, for everyone that had a Pro Tools license, Avid issued everyone a second license so they could, you know, use Pro Tools at home if they couldn't get into the studio. Oh, yeah. And yeah, uh -huh. certainly, you know, looking with hindsight, a lot of music was made during lockdown. A lot of good music. Yeah. Because that's what people did. They went home and made music. What's special about Pro Tools cloud collaboration? Because I know it's been through different iterations. I remember, was it Rocket? Res Rocket. Res Rocket. It was Res Rocket, and it was Rocket Networks. Yeah, then, Rocket Networks, that's right. And I think Avid eventually, or Digi Design at the time, actually bought that out. Uh-huh. 
And the IP was then used to make one of my favorite things ever, which was digi delivery. Oh, yeah, yeah. But ResRocket was kind of, I kind of started using it very early on. Um, but it was great. It allowed you to work on whatever DAW and whatever location. And then you would just press a button, it would send everything to other people that were collaborating with you. So we kind of took that basic desire to do these things within Pro Tools. And so it would check the cloud mm -hmm. and it updates the tracks on your session based on the new, yeah. new files that have been based, added. Based on then, what's changed. Uh -huh. um, Does it do it in real time? I, or is it? It's near real time. But yeah, if someone uploads a track, you see that there uh -huh. um, and it will start you know, in the background, pulling it down. And then mm -hmm. you just kind of go, all right, I want the update in my session. You just click a button and you get the other artists updates. That's pretty slick. And how many people can you do that with? Is there a limit? I think we have a, a limit of 10 people per collaboration. Oh, that's so. pretty good. If you can collaborate with 10 people, you're pretty, yeah. you should be pretty set, I would guess. Yeah. It's certainly an artificial limit. It's just, you know, we haven't really had that much more requests and we don't, you never want to put out features, which is a case of like, how long is a string? Because you have to test that. Yeah. Saying unlimited. Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. At some point it's going to break. Of course. That's just the nature of these things. Speaking of some point, you went through the acquisition with Avid. No, right? Avid actually, when I joined in 2003, Avid actually had already bought DigiDesign. They had already they, bought they it. They didn't, okay. they did a, a rebranding. I forgot that at, it's at been point. that long. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They did a rebranding at one point uh -huh. um, where they did change it to, from DigiDesign Digi Pro to Tools uh -huh. to Avid Pro Tools. Right. And that, but that's been quite a long time ago, well over 10 years. Uh-huh. And wasn't Euphonics part of somewhere in that mix too? Yeah. Yeah. So Euphonics was originally created by Dieter Meyer from Yellow. Uh -huh. You know that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That track. Uh-huh. Uh, because he wanted a mixing console for himself. And I don't know if you know much about Dieter Meyer. He's, he's independently wealthy outside of his uh, music. Mm -hmm. So he set up a company to make the console he wanted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But eventually, yeah, Avid bought Euphonics. They were located right beside the Fries in Palo Alto. That's mm -hmm. how long ago that was. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But yeah, since they've continued to make great consoles, the S-Series stuff, that's all great stuff. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Artist Mix Series too. I mean, that's, I was just showing you our yeah, studios. Yeah. We're still using those here and, and they still work. They're still nice mm -hmm. to be able to integrate. But yeah, the S-Series consoles are lovely and yeah. being able to control everything from the iPad is, oh yeah, that's slick. Yeah, but uh, I mean, you can even just pull down the, if you just want to use an iPad, there's also the Pro Tools control app, which you can do it just right on the touchscreen. That's right. If you don't really need the physical faders. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. At some point, I'm sure that'll go away. I can only imagine with all the tech and where it's going. Mm -hmm. I'm still old school. I want to grab a fader. Yeah. I want to grab a knob. No, you know. I, yeah, you know, I think we've been talking about DJing without controllers and stuff True like that. that. And, uh, yes. yeah, yeah no, I, you know, I DJ off my iPad, but I still love having like a super cheap controller right there just for moving faders around. Yeah, for sure. So you went from developer to architect. Yeah. Was that a big jump for you? Yeah. I wouldn't think so. So, it, so talk about, what, what does that mean? Talk about, what does that transition So like? when you're an engineer, you've kind of got an engineering manager looking out for you, sort of protecting you from the big world out there. Uh -huh. You go into architecture, there's no such limits. Cool. It's like you're uh -huh. exposed to everything. The kind of architect I am, so we have product architects. So Media Composer has multiple product architects. Uh, Pro Tools has a product architect. 
I'm an architect of an overall business area. So for me, that includes Pro Tools, Media Composers, Sibelius, which is notation, right? Media Composers, video editing. Yeah. Um, I mean, these are the big guns of Avid. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. But I'm not. I'm not solely responsible for them. They've got experts mm -hmm. right there, but. It's kind of like an overarching product. People tend to think about only their application, uh -huh. whereas in my group, I have to think about all the applications and where they could go. Um, the integration pieces. And in integrations, uh -huh. things that go very much involved and when things go across different business units as well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Can you give us an example of that? Are you talking about, when we talk about business units, are we talking about well, so Avid has three roughly business units: is audio, video, and cloud. Oh, okay. You know, sure. so so if something's got to work with audio and video, then kind of comes into my world. Like for instance, cloud collaboration came from audio, but also included cloud. So it's actually going across another kind of business unit. Mm -hmm. So you've got to really be able to one provide designs, mm -hmm. to provide security for everything, mm -hmm. which is very important, and then. The other aspect is you're working with teams that really don't know much about the other people. You know, if, if you're working with people in cloud media, they have never launched Pro Tools, you know. Mm -hmm. Or if you're looking for really good Pro Tools developers, they're not good at, you know, the JavaScript world or, you know, they're all like very knowledgeable C++ engineers, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they don't tend to mix. So you've got to, as an architect, you've got to straddle that world and be able to, I can write JavaScript, I can read JavaScript code, uh, you know, Node.js, all of that sort of fine, if I need to dig in. Mm -hmm. But it's all about driving them. And then um, at the business level, when you're introducing new products, there's a lot of things you have to process, you have to go through to justify, make sure there's good designs, do security reviews, select the technology, because this thing might be around for another 20 years. Yeah, it's you know? big stuff. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And at what point do you have to integrate then with C-level executives uh, at Avid? To, oh. well, you're running all the architectural design stuff yeah. by? Yeah, the, there's a uh -huh. review process for yeah. any major project, any new product. They all go through quite a lot of uh, scrutiny, as they should, because they're investing generally quite a bit of money into it. And they want to make sure that we know what it is we're building before we go and build it. And do you find that a lot more stressful? Is that a much more stressful place for you to be, or you're, is this a happy place for you? Um, I like the challenge of being in architecture. Things can swing from something often really sort of core video technology, or it can be something cloud related, or you know security stuff coming on any different day. Uh huh. So you can end up having to jump around quite a bit. What would you say have been some of your biggest challenges then in the, in the architect and work of, that you're doing with Avid? Imposter syndrome again. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, 20 years in and we still got it. Well, huh? <laughs> certainly when I started in architecture because uh -huh. the, the, as a developer, there's a lot of the business that you don't need to know about. Your business is code. Yeah. You know, whereas in architecture, you've got to know all the different parts of the business that you're assigned to. I mean, we do have, you know, dedicated security people. We do have dedicated community people. But once you're in architecture, you might have to know about security in the community. Uh -huh. That's sort of stuff. So. What, what, are, what are some of the biggest security concerns that you guys have? Oh, there's continually ones. Um, the, uh, these opinions are mine, not necessarily of my employers. Understood, <laughs> of course, yeah. I mean, there was the big log4j thing that came in that 
basically affected everything from Minecraft to anything basically running in Java. So mm. we had to message to our customers what our exposure was for that. Mm -hmm. And we put out a public message mm -hmm. around that. Mm -hmm. um, and these come from hackers, these kind of things? Yeah. Maybe they're hacking in and they're trying to mess with the code? What are they trying to do? Well, they were messing with Minecraft at the start. Right. And uh -huh. then well, what's the, Pro Tools' relationship to Minecraft? There's Java servers, Java code in the service. So uh -huh. if you could form like the right kind of message to I think with that one, you could even like form a username mm -hmm. or even put a few bits of text in chat. It would trigger this Java logger to uh, log a message. That message could then be formed so that it would make an outbound call to wherever you wanted. So something like really well crafted there could just end up taking down your servers. Oh shit! So <laughs> run it and running arbitrary code from right. outside inside your server environment, uh -huh. and that's what you really don't want. No, you don't. Because no, once don't. they've got there, uh -huh. the people uh, farming these kind of exploits don't have your interests in mind. Yeah, of so course not. There's been quite a lot of that. So there's in general can that, uh, that can lead to like ransom situations or. Uh, yeah, uh, you could there's all sorts of things you could do. Um, you could do denial of service type oh. attacks, bring services down that you shut them down mm -hmm. you, that you're financially dependent on. Mm -hmm. um, those sort of things. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, it, it's concern not just at Avid. It's it's every company. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so all throughout this transition, you've continued to be creative. Now let's kind of switch gears a little bit. Sure. What we've been talking about here has been your front line professional connection to this entire industry, which obviously you've had an impact on. And to have an impact as big as Pro Tools has had, I mean, Pro Tools obviously is, has been the de facto DAW of every studio around, mm -hmm. right? Despite what, you know, Ableton has been able to do or Logic, and obviously there's other great DAWs okay. out there, but there's no doubt Pro Tools from a professional user standpoint has dominated the studio world for many years. So it's obviously, it's got to feel good that you've had such an impact on, oh, on yeah. this company. Yeah. You know? I mean, I've always loved working with audio. I find it fun. You know, every now and then I have to work in video projects and then I'm happy to get back to audio projects. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, no. And yeah, I mean, even from like my first release when I did all the latency compensation, read people saying, I just played my mix back and it brought tears to my eyes, you know, yeah. that, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh once they were getting things all in phase. So yeah, it's quick to impact. I wish it people. was that easy, man. I, I've got mixes going way back and you know, <laughs> we used to use Studio Vision. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Remember Studio, <laughs> Opcode Studio Vision? I've actually worked with Dave Oppenheimer who created all that. I know right. Dave, I know Dave and yeah. Bill Thompson is a good mm -hmm. friend of mine. And, and uh, yeah, we used that extensively with Sample Cell. Mm -hmm. Remember Sample Cell? Oh yeah. Uh huh. So yeah, it, it's kind of crazy that it goes back that far, but I can't open those sessions anymore, and that pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I was saying, in tandem to all of this frontline, pretty heavy professional development work that you've been doing, there was your creative side, right? Mm -hmm. And you never lost touch with that, huh? which I think is super important, right? I mean, yeah. that's kind of like, and I think if there's a message here that I want to relate in what, you know, Steven's been able to do with his careers, you know, being able to go deep into the technical sector of the industry and really see it for the opportunity that it was, because you were right at the heart of this digital convergence, mm -hmm. right? Here we are. I mean, the timing couldn't have been better. 
yep. right? Because the industry was going to go in that direction and you're like, and I'm going to be on that <laughs> boat, right? Yeah. So you're able to be on the major boat that's, you know, setting out to sea to change the entire industry effectively. But at the same time, there's this creative impulse that you've had and a connection to electronic music. Oh, yeah. So where did that start? And let's talk about where that went for you. Sure. You know, I was always enjoyed music kind of growing up. And um, not long after I kind of moved out here, early 90s, I kind of met a bunch of people and they started showing me DJs, DJing equipment with CDs. And I was like, oh, you can DJ with CDs? <laughs> Way back then. Um, uh -huh. And... I think I was actually lent a pair of uh, CD decks. I mean, they took about five seconds to spin up and all that sort of stuff uh -huh. way back then. Yeah. But I played around with them and kind of really liked it. At the same time, there was a kind of art gallery near where I was living at the time, and they had really nice down-tempo chill-out CDs, so I'd buy CDs off them, mm -hmm. and we'd get talking about music. And at one point, they were like, hey, we're going to have a gallery opening. Why don't you come DJ for us? Because you like all the music we like. Uh, so that's kind of how I got So they kind of like dubbed you DJ. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. And was this the point at which Cynicus was born? No. No, it was no. that much later. Uh-huh. No, 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 no. No? I had okay. Cynicus before I started oh, DJing. okay. Because okay. every time I'd go to a website to create a new username, right, uh -huh. I'd go Stephen Wilson. Uh -huh. All right. Taken. Taken. You know, there's okay. 700 Stephen Wilsons in California. That's all? <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh -huh. I, I kind of scratched my head and I said, well, Let's see if I can find an acronym. And it was Stephen in the UK and the US. And that's where Cynicus came from. Oh, no way. Uh -huh. I would have never guessed that. I thought there was going to be some elaborate storytelling right, behind it. It's an acronym. Uh, okay, it's an acronym. All right. <laughs> that was the easiest thing about the gig was deciding what I would call myself. But this is art gallery opening, and it was really, really fun. And I DJed with them guys for many, many years. And... At one point, they actually opened another shop in LA and they asked me to come down and DJ for them. It turned out it was a Leonard Nimoy's book release. No way. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. So he'd made this... Leonard Star Trek. Mr. Star Trek. All right. He'd made this uh, uh -huh. fairly erotic photography book that had a lot of controversial uh, Jewish imagery done in. Um, was he Jewish? He I think he is, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So kind of makes sense. I get there, start DJing. <laughs> uh -huh. Leonard Nimoy's there in the crowd. Uh -huh. One of his uh, people said, oh, I really like this music. And then the next thing, there's like um, a William Shatner walking in. And then there's uh, Q. And then there's Ahura. And, uh -huh. uh, it was just all of a sudden, I'm like, hey, I'm in the middle of a Star Trek episode here. Wow. <laughs> so, that must have been interesting. Uh, so that, that was real fun. Real fun. That's kind of um, cool. You know, I do have a William Shatner point there because my dad who grew up in montreal mm -hmm. went to school with william shatner oh wow. yeah they went to mcgill together and he actually uh went canoeing down the hudson river together on a big trip that they did so he always liked to tell me his william shatner stories mm -hmm. so that's cool we got yet something else we have in common here yeah. we have a, our star trek uh connection yeah there uh -huh. you go yeah that's cool all right, so you had your Star Trek experience uh -huh. there. Yeah, uh -huh. and, so, and so I just kind of enjoyed DJing mainly, um, you know, with the art gallery stuff. It was all this nice chill-out stuff. Then I think in 2003, I moved into the city, and, um, you know, back then you would have demo CDs and stuff like that. So I put a bunch of demo CDs around the city, and one of them got to a bar called Anu, and they were like, instantly, we've got to have them DJ here. Mm -hmm. And... 
but also I went back, I think the next evening and they said, we've been playing your demo CD on repeat nonstop all day. And I'm like, all right, well, and then this guy at the bar said, Hey, you like all the same music I do. And that turned out to be Mason Rother who founded Thump Radio. Ah. So I started doing down tempo shows with Mason Rother and then boy, we would, um, when Thump Radio, which was a pretty sizable DJ collective that used to be on FM in San Francisco, mm-hmm. there were like about 40 different DJs in that collective. When they would do like a big main room party up at 550 Barnival with like Infected Mushroom or Spongle, we'd have the back room being what we called then Thump Chill. Mm-hmm. That was all down tempo electronic DJs, but you know, your wacky side chill stuff. And actually we would get in this DJ crew called the Ambient Mafia, who also played this really cool down tempo stuff. And that was all like back in 2003 when I first came across the Ambient Mafia. Mm. So the story kind of goes on to, I think I told you the story about how I started DJing with the Ambient Mafia yeah, a yeah, little bit earlier with, with the online. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. So it kind of went full circle then. Yeah. So you, you got into this art gallery scene, it led to Thump Radio. Mm-hmm. And now was Thump Radio also internet streaming at that point? They were internet yeah. streaming. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. what I thought. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. So I think it was more on demand type stuff. I don't think they were live streaming even mm-hmm. back then. They were like a full-on business, and so they had like all the ISDN capabilities and stuff like that uh-huh. for when they would need it. So yeah, they were, they were streaming stuff. Now, it wasn't long ago, I remember you and I ran into each other at a reunion party, mm-hmm. cool reunion party, yep. right? I showed you the pictures earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to put them up on the blog <laughs> when, when we post the podcast for sure, because I mm-hmm. love those pictures of you and I. We had our own little reunion, and it was the cool reunion. Yeah. Talk cool. about talk about cool. What was your connection oh, to oh, that? Cool yeah. was... And that's Q-O-O-L, for those of you who don't remember. <laughs> cool was a Wednesday institution in San Francisco for years. I mean, yeah. you would go there at 5 p.m., right after your work uh-huh. and there would be a line around the corner at 5 p.m. on a Wednesday and yeah. we would just go in and you know banging progressive house all night and then it closed up at 9 p.m. and so that was your hump day you could go back home and uh-huh. you'd be fine for work in theory on the <laughs> Thursday uh-huh. <laughs> in theory in theory yeah yeah that, that was an institution here in yeah. san francisco for a, a really long time yeah and i always liked uh playing for john dean special they're really nice guys mm-hmm. um i might be playing with special at, at a birthday party in a couple of weeks nice. uh, next weekend uh-huh. um i haven't seen him in a long time uh-huh but yeah the 25th anniversary party was just like a lot of people coming out of the woodwork that i hadn't seen in such a long time it was such a great party oh uh, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and now Funky Cozy was another thing that came up. And we'll t- yeah, talk about so, that a little bit. So that was, it's actually my friend that's turning 50 next week. So that was kind of. That's a, John Beach. That's is John that right? Beach. Yeah. Happy birthday, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You old fart. <laughs> he, he's, he's now like one of the architects for Amazon Prime Music. So even back then, he was not actually working in a music. He was, I think he was working for. Uh, satellite phone company but um you know i think after djing with him for years you know he definitely got more of a music bug and then realized hey i could actually get paid for doing music stuff during, yeah. during the day. Uh-huh. 
Funky Cozy was kind of like, it took the blend of the down-tempo stuff and then over the night would wind it up into an arc of really wacky progressive house. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a really fun party. I think we did it for almost 10 years or something like that, monthly party. And we had great DJs. I mean, I was the first person to fly and have Morgan Page play in town. No way. And he slept on He's my couch. He's in town this weekend, I he think. He slept on my couch. Uh-huh. And we couldn't afford to pay him because we'd spent everything in the airfare. <laughs> so, you know, we got so many, like, opportunities to do that sort of stuff. And it's a relatively small collective of, like, five, six DJs or something like that. But mm -hmm. it was a whole, whole bunch of fun. Just kind of, you know, got me more enthusiastic about it. But... So did that get you into the event business itself? Were you involved at the core of that in promoting and Yeah, certainly, certainly in promoting and right. stuff like that. And then I got involved in so many events at one point, it just all imploded. It was kind of like, too I'm much, doing huh? too much. Mm -hmm. I was doing, I think at one point, I was doing three parties on a Saturday night. On and one was, night? And then having to jump between the two. Yeah. Holy crap. But it was kind of like. And, and holding down uh, your gig with Avid. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that, I got a bit too tiring. And so I then decided to sort of real focus back into my passion, which was down tempo stuff. So that's when you're like, I need to chill out, man. Yeah. I'm getting back to the, to, to my core here. So uh -huh. at the same time, Thump Radio came to its bit of an end and, um, that was for legal reasons, wasn't yeah, it? There was a lot some... of legal mm. issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is often at the heart of how these audio internet based yeah. companies implode. Hmm? Yeah, or, or just in the music industry in general. In general, can yeah. Be, yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, sh certainly sharks out there. And But it didn't take Mason, Rother and I too long to spin up our own thing, which is called Below Zero. Oh. And we used to do Sunday nights on Energy 927 FM. Uh -huh. So not too unlike what we do with Sunday Sundowns with Ambient sure, Mafia. But you were actually on, on FM radio. On FM, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. And that lasted about five years, is that right? Yeah, I think we were on uh -huh. FM for about five years. Yeah, it was really kind of fun. I mean, I still think like, hey, some of my music is still on its way to the stars at this point because it's <laughs> like actual broadcast from a radio tower. Oh, right. So it's traveling through space. Yeah, so aliens <laughs> might get to listen to it at some point, you know? <laughs> How did you uh, get your way on the radio? How did you make that happen? Well, Mason, he was already, I think in the Thump Radio days, they, they actually had three different shows on, on three different FM stations. So he had all the big connections from the Thump Radio days. Oh, um, so okay. he was very, very instrumental in getting uh, the, the FM show. Mm -hmm. And then eventually Energy 987, unfortunately, um, became no more because of on the corporate buyouts, probably? <coughs> Wells, I think Wells Fargo recalled their loan. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's another story. All yeah, right. and that, uh -huh. that's, that's where I think it was $30 million that they had borrowed to get their FCC license, mm -hmm. and it got sold for $1 million after the fire sale. <sighs> that's going to So there was no more um, independent mm -hmm. dance music in San Francisco after that on FM. Uh-huh. But... Um, uh, Mason and I had always been podcasting. In fact, I wrote, wrote up scripts and stuff like that to do podcasting of the show. You know, it, the show was pre-baked, so it's not like there was anyone in the studios on Sunday nights. We would send them the files and they would, they would play it back. But we would also take them files and then push it onto Apple Podcasts, yeah. know, even way back then. So we kept on doing that. I think we did that for another um, 10 years. And we just recently, through uh, various life decisions with... Um, as getting older, um, Mason decided to stop it. But at the same time, 
we had the trademark for below zero mm-hmm. and we got a lawyer's letter mm-hmm. saying, contesting that trademark. Oh. Mm-hmm. So to defend it, it was probably going to cost us about $60,000 just to go to court to say, hey, look, we have this, it's mm-hmm. ours. Mm-hmm. So at that point, we just kind of didn't want to contest it. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why Below Zero went. We don't know who it was, but it was- Oh, uh, it was anonymous? They didn't even say it? Only through their lawyer. Uh-huh. So probably at some point, there'll be some artist called Below Zero. How long ago was that? I think it's about a year ago. Oh, something like ago. that, uh-huh. yeah. But uh, yeah, we don't really know who it was, but the trademark is below zero in the music field. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, we just... You know, we've had the same thing with Pyramind. I've had Pyramind as a trademark for uh, over 20 years now in the music industry. And there are other artists who are using our name. Mm-hmm. And I haven't done anything about it yet. Mm-hmm. But we've been informed by our attorneys that we should be. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons we did that was to secure the rights to the name for SoundCloud and mm-hmm. for our label. And so we had to get a trademark in the Benelux and other regions. And, you know, when you go chasing all these things down, it does add up. Oh, yeah. You know, so you got to be serious. You, you, yeah. you don't want to be just tossing all that money around mm-hmm. um, unless you, you're really committed to, to yeah. knowing that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah I understand. The, the, there just wasn't enough income within Below Zero. I mean, it was, again, very much a passion project. Yeah. Um, you know, because we loved the down-tempo chills music, sure. that yeah. sort of stuff. So. Yeah. Well, now that's led on to yet more passion projects because you've got Ambient Mafia, but you've got something else brewing called Unison, huh? Yeah. Let's talk about Unison. What's the deal there, huh? Okay. So again, Unison kind of formed through lockdown and everyone being at home, but so there was about 10 different DJ crews in the city, people like Space Cowboys, Friends and Family, Angels of Bass, uh, the Ambient Mafia we'd all start doing streaming events online and we'd all be competing with each other online. Mm -hmm. And that's not really kind of what we wanted to do. So we knew we could be a force for good. So what we decided to do was um, get all of these different collectives into a collective that we called Unison or more a meta collective. Mm -hmm. And we would basically do two-day parties that sometimes went into three. And we'd use very similar stage technology to what Ambient Mafia was using that I was describing earlier. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it was actually invented by the the sort of research of that kind of workflow all happened through Unison and we propagated it into the Ambient Mafia. And so we would have three stages. So we'd essentially have three stage computers, mm-hmm. two of them dance stages, uh, one of them being another downtempo stage. And we'd do events over the two days across these three stages with about 60 in total DJs, mostly from the San Francisco area. And during that time, we'd actually do fundraisers for various different local charities or charities that were pretty topical at the time and raise money for them. Uh, So it was everything from COVID relief funds to some Stop Asian Hate uh, funds, Black Lives Matters funds, all of that. And so we did like nine of these all-weekend events, and I think we ended up raising something like $75,000 for charity all during that's amazing. lockdown. Yeah, that's amazing. I want to talk to you more about this, maybe not right now, but I'm definitely talking to a crew of folk uh, 
who are intent and who have been working with the Ukrainian um, humanitarian relief mm -hmm. funds to raise money. And we're putting together um, a plan for that to raise some funds and do mm -hmm. some live streams. And Count me in. Count me in. Great. I've got, I, a, yeah. I've got a lot of colleagues in Ukraine, yeah. um, and especially in Kiev. Uh -huh. Or Kiev, Kiev, as they pronounce Kiev, it. Yeah. Uh -huh. I've yeah. certainly been doing a lot of stuff to um, help them continue to work and continue under the stress. And I've had a very clear policy on that, that even if people get conscripted, they're still paid. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. That's, that's mm -hmm. it. That's, it's, it's heartening to hear that kind of policy. Yep. In yep. Place. It's been a, it's, it's been a very concerning and I, I've been pretty public about, um, its opinion on it. We've, mm -hmm. um, uh, stopped doing business with Russia, mm -hmm. but we know it's not the Russian people. So. Yeah, that's some pretty intense stuff going on yep. over there. And yeah, our hearts go out to all the Ukrainians who are suffering through their invasion. Um, and hopefully it doesn't drag on and on and on. And, yep. and that's all I'm going to say about it right this moment here. Yeah. But yes, we will definitely talk about this because yep. I think uh, it's, wor it's well worth it. So tell us more about Unison then. You, you've created this fundraising community. You guys developed this technology as well? We kind of stitched together all of the technology and then did all the education, like we have documents for stage managers to show them what they need to be doing. We have documents for DJs because the DJs, when we started, a lot of DJs were like, I don't really use computers, you know? Uh -huh. um, oh, yeah. So we had to do the, a lot of the education, get people streaming set up going and stable. Stable is <laughs> yeah. so important. Yeah. Now with this education process, is this something that you guys would be open to sharing like yeah, with our I listeners I think, here? I think, I think we can sh share some of the, um, some of this documentation. Some of the documents. I, I probably have to go back and make sure there's no passwords in any of it of or anything yeah. like that. Uh -huh. But, um, that would be yeah, amazing. It yeah. kind of shows you what you need to be able to get up streaming and OBS. You know, a lot of it is like how you manage a stage computer, but for Unison, because it's so many DJs, um, we have a slightly different process between the, the ambient mafia shows. Uh, we tend to run our own streaming server, so people aren't actually streaming to Twitch. They're streaming to uh, the Unison streaming server, and then things go downstream more or less the same. Mm -hmm. But we had so many problems with, you know, you can be running a stage for 18 hours a day, two days, and so a lot more can go wrong with that. But within Unison, not just do we have stage managers doing, you know, two, three hour shifts. We also have a tech team behind it that are there to go in and troubleshoot. So like essentially tech support. But with Unison, they tend to be like super, super smart people. Uh, <laughs> you know, like we've got broadcast engineers in there. Mm -hmm. That's their job. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people are really, really technical. Know things inside out. Can solve any problem, whether it comes up for the DJs, or it comes up for the stages. We've specified, you know, we've got specs on what we expect from the streaming servers to the stages, how the stages should be. Yeah, and it's a super organized community that I'm really happy to be a part of. You know, if they've got me in tech support, you know, it's kind of like they've got a pretty solid tech basis. But That's pretty damn cool. And then on top of that, we talked about this too earlier, kind of the ethos Mm -hmm. behind Unison, the sense of giving, paying it forward, and being able to share that kind of knowledge. I think that's so intrinsic, too, I think, to the dance community, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Leading with your heart and creating community and supporting and nurturing that. 
And that seems to be a big part of what you guys are up to as well. Yeah. So, so not just giving back to the community, but giving back to the wider community. That's what Unison's all about. Mm-hmm. We even have a charity team mm-hmm. that sort of manages, you know, what charity we're going to decide to do for this event or that event. Yeah. And then making sure that we actually collect this charity stuff and they set up all the sites to be able to donate. And then we give that money to the charity, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And, and of course, a lot of the charities send back this, thank you so much. So mm-hmm. we send that out to um, usually all, all of our communities so that they're aware that they're making a difference. That's hugely impactful. And I'm, I'm really, that always makes me happy to hear that. And now you guys are also planning to do your own events, kind of like a camp out, right? We're doing a camp out. That's always fun. Uh, Yeah, Uh it's uh, in the process. I think we're just about done with locking down the DJ lineup. Yeah. Uh, I think we've got something like nearly 50 DJs all going to be. It's going to be in Northern California. I Uh think the location's still not public yet, but Uh we've secured the location. Uh Uh-huh. Then we're going to be, um, with any unison, but even if it's online, there's also always a group of volunteers, like you want moderators and mm-hmm. chats and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. In fact, this is kind of one of the interesting things. Because unison was all online, the first thing we did after a couple of them is we, we wrote a code of conduct. Uh-huh. Like, and it's not that bad. It's more or less, don't be an asshole. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, we wanted to make sure everyone agreed to this, that this is what's expected of you. You know, no, we're throwing a party, right? It's not a monastery. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, both Unison and Ambient Mafia, and Ambient Mafia more or less took the code of conduct from Unison, and we have an online code of conduct that we expect from our DJs and people coming to the parties. Mm-hmm. So, because, you know, you don't want anyone to ruin the party for you. No, you definitely don't. And, you know, it sounds like you know how to throw a pretty good party. So. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> from my experience, from <laughs> what I can see, that's the fact. So this kind of brings us current times now. And looking ahead, what does the future look like for Sinecus? Where do you see this leading you, uh, you know, in terms of your work with Avid and, and uh, as an artist and, and producer? Where, where's this going? Well, um, certainly we're making noises about doing a second Ambient Mafia compilation. I definitely want to throw my hat into the ring when we do that because I should be doing more production, really. I've got, mm-hmm. I've got all the toys. I was going to say, Gosh. right? Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, you know, I'd be happy to collaborate. We could do something together here. Mm-hmm. You know, I got a few studios myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've started putting out some new tracks under my new artist moniker, Code 369. Oh. Yeah, I'm excited about that too. So oh. I'd say you're never too old, man. That, mm-hmm. That's at the end of the day, being creative is what keeps you young. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I do have access to all the toys, and there's some fun toys on their way. So, um, get to play with them as well. Oh, are you alluding to something we should uh, know about? I'm not alluding to anything. Oh. <laughs> I'm just, there's always good toys in the works uh-huh. when you're at Avid, but there's some really good ones coming. There's some good ones coming. Well, uh, yeah, I'll be excited to see what's coming down the pipe there with Avid. And we got another track to play with you here. Let's, yep. we can close out here with uh, one of your compilation tracks here, right? This one's called Frog Pond, huh? Yep. It's by Mo Corleone, who's, uh, again, another awesome DJ. Yeah. Uh, she's also classically trained violinist and classically trained singer. Yeah. And I know she plays live out in the desert and places like that, and she's had that one around for a while. But um, the track actually is called Frog Pond because she's a huge fan of frogs. 
I love it. I hear the froggies in the water uh-huh. already. Yep. They're splashing right, around. There's huh? definitely rabbit, rabbits in the background as well. It says this is featuring Bo Dream. Yep. Bo Dream is our production partner that she plays live with as well. Very cool. Very cool. Well, this has been really fun. Oh, it's been a blast. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for being a part of the Mentor My Mix podcast series. And if you want to check out more about Stephen and what he's up to, you can follow the links here down below on the podcast blog and on the Mentor My Mix podcast site. There's links for unison.stream, ambientmafia.com. You can find these chill room culture compilations at ambientmafia.bandcamp.com and don't forget the Ambient Mafia streams every Sunday sundowns live Sundays from 5 to 10 o'clock right? PSD PSD super awesome thanks again Cynicus this has been a pleasure thank you it's been a pleasure thanks for having me of course man Remember, if you have a guest suggestion or want to contact me for any reason, we have a contact form on the Mentor My Mix website. That's MentorMyMix.com. Or feel free to email me at Greg at MentorMyMix.com. Special thanks to Quinn Grodzins for the theme music and audio editing, Josh Valdez and Sean McKenna for audio and video production, and Corey Schubert for video editing and post-production. <laughs>